0: Greetings from Cyberdelic Space. This is Lorenzo, and I'm your host here in the Psychedelic Salon. And today is day 132 of Occupy Wall Street. And I want to again thank all our fellow saloners who have bought a copy of my pay what you can audiobook uh, uh, my novel the genesis generation or who bought one of my amazon kindle books or made a direct donation to the salon uh, all those various forms of support are what keep me going and uh, i deeply appreciate it now the reason you haven't heard from me for a bit is that i've been wrapped up in getting ready for this weekend's workshop that bruce damer and i are leading in sierra madre and uh, now that the event is sold out and i don't feel like i'm trying to sell you something i'll uh, i'll be telling you more about that after today's program but the headline is that you're going to be able to hear and see much of it online and for free as uh, well as long as our tech plans come together <laughs> that's always a what if but uh, i think they will However, first I want to let you know about a festival that's coming up in May that was one of the all-time great events that I've been to in the past, Uh, and the event uh, this year is Symbiosis uh, Pyramid Eclipse Gathering that will be held at Pyramid Lake, uh, Pyramid Lake, Nevada, from May 17th to May 22nd, and if you're a burner, you'll recognize the location as uh, being on your way to Black Rock City. Well, at least from the way I come. (laughs) You know, my my wife and I participated in the 2009 Symbiosis Gathering. Uh, It was held just outside of Yosemite National Park. And the music, the exhibits, and the people were just fantastic. Uh, It was uh, truly a magical experience for us. And I have no doubt but what this upcoming one in May of 2012 will be even better. Now, uh, these events aren't open-ended, and so if you're planning on going, you should get your reservations in today, uh, particularly because there is a discount for early reservations. Uh, just go to symbiosispresents.com or pyramideclipse.com Uh, And I'll link to both of them in the program notes. And uh, there you can find out all about this uh, wonderful group of people and this event. Uh, And will I be there, you ask? Uh, Well, sadly, not this year. Had I not already committed to attending this year's Burning Man Festival, I would most definitely be attending. But uh, my lazy old bones are only good for maybe one of these events a year at best. So I won't be able to make it this year, but uh, hopefully that won't be the case for the next one. Now one final announcement that I want to make comes from our fellow podcaster, Jan Irvin. And until I received an email from Bruce Damer, I wasn't really aware of this fact either. But did you know that that wonderful, uh, that really huge cache of Terrence McKinnon audio that's uh, been floating around the net for years, you know, there must be, what, 70 items on it or something, uh, and, you know, some of which I played here in the salon, uh, well, they were all originally sourced from the Gnostic Media site. And uh, what's more, most of them were originally recorded by Jeannie Brittington-Erstatt. Uh, who, upon her death in April of 2004, left permission to uh, Jan Irvin to place them online for us all to enjoy. And. Uh So I'd like to suggest that uh, maybe the next time any of us listen to uh, one of these recordings, uh, which, as I said, must comprise uh, at least 70 hours or so of McKenna material, well, uh, maybe we should try to picture Jeannie sitting in the audience and recording them for us. And uh, also, maybe we can uh, thank Jan by stopping by his GnosticMedia.com site and uh, maybe buying a CD version of one of these talks. Uh, you can find them there, actually, in the She Who Remembers archives. And uh, my thanks go out to Jan and Jeannie as well. And, uh, hey, you both have added immensely to the tribe, and we thank you for your contribution to our collective knowledge of the thought of Terence McKenna. And speaking of Terrence McKenna... It was back in 1977 that, uh, well, at least as far as I know, it was then that he was first mentioned by an already established celebrity on the uh, consciousness circuit. And that was when Robert Anton Wilson wrote about Terence's time wave zero idea in Cosmic Trigger. And so it is to the life of Robert Anton Wilson, then, that uh, I'd like to turn today. Now, originally I planned on getting this podcast out last week because uh, Boing Boing and others were celebrating Raw Week, and I'll be sure to put uh, the links to that Boing Boing section in today's program notes. Uh, If you're a Bob Wilson fan, you owe it to yourself to go there and uh, read some of the great tributes to him, including one by Eric Davis, who has uh, long been a friend of the salon. So what I'm going to play for you now is part of a two-CD collection produced by Joe Matheny, And given to the Salon to podcast by the distributor, the Original Falcon Press, which you can find via OriginalFalcon.com. And a big thank you again goes out to Joe and the Original Falcon Press for letting me play these recordings for you here in the Salon. Now, we don't have time to hear the entire collection, which is titled Robert Anton Wilson Remembered, but I've selected a representative sampling that I think gives a really well-rounded picture of this incredible mind, as well as uh, giving us a little better idea of uh, what a wonderful person that was, a guy that his friends called Bob and the rest of us called Raw. Well, the voices that you'll hear in just a moment are, and in the order you'll be hearing them are, Douglas Rushkoff. Taro Ali, Tiffany Lee Brown, and uh, although I don't know where Tiffany stands on Occupy Wall Street, uh, her talk sounds right out of the movement to me. And then Tiffany is followed by David J. Brown, uh, author of uh, many books, including Mavericks of the Mind, which is one of my favorites, uh, along with Mavericks of Medicine. Uh, and then the closing comments come uh, from the producer and friend of the salon, Joseph Matheny.
1: Hi, it's Douglas Rushkoff here. One of my uh, very first uh, book readings, or book talks, I guess you'd call it, was um, at a bookstore called the, the Capitola Cafe down near Santa Cruz in, gosh, like 94. And I was talking about this book, Siberia, which had been, um, well, very influenced by you know folks like Timothy Leary and and uh William Burroughs and uh, I guess the William Gibson, Bruce Sterling and maybe most of all Robert Anton Wilson because um the book was called Siberia and um I felt like I was moving through a a new world this sort of new hypertextual. It was before the web or anything, but there was still computers and hypertext and fractals and psychedelics and rave culture. and um, I was moving through a, a new world of people who were extremely um, optimistic about the promise of what they were doing. I mean, these were folks who thought we were about to touch aliens and form the great cosmic uh, you know, colonial organism and, you know, Terrence McKenna thought we'd finally found the Philosopher's Stone and I wasn't sure if we found the Philosopher's Stone or just the philosopher Stone um, and I had a, a good time though moving through that world and I was really psyched to go speak in Santa Cruz which is, you know, the location for not only some some great um, psychedelic trips of many people but, um Um, some uh, extended research by, you know, Ralph Abraham and and many other great mathematicians, thinkers, scientists. So I get up there to do this talk where, you know, I'm basically saying, don't worry, things are great and uh, something's happening and... um, but we've got to look, you know, sort of this, this, this Robert Anton Wilson sort of balanced approach, try on many, many sets of spectacles as you look at this stuff, you know, because some of them will be dark and some of them will be bright. Some of them you'll understand and some will be really chaotic and confusing. And I'm getting up there about to do this talk, which I think is going to be to sort of the general public. And there, you know, sitting in the front row are uh, Ralph Abraham sitting next to Nina Graboi, who was uh, a great writer and was, was his uh, uh, assistant for a long time, and uh, then next to them, like right in front of my face, uh, Robert Anton Wilson, and uh, I didn't know what to do, but I just went, I just went for it. You know, I did my talk, and I saw them sitting there, sort of, you know, maybe a little bit, almost more serious than the others. I felt like, you know, they'd been through this. I sound like a fool? I'm just a kid talking to the people who really get this stuff. And um, so I finally do this talk, and it was actually a good talk. It was it was exciting. The audience was really thrilled. I mean, they kept you know, the audience kept coming up with really kind of dark scenarios for the future of this stuff, and I would sort of try to turn it around and show how you could actually look at you know the brighter side and and trying to create other scenarios how things might work out better than they were suspecting. And uh, it was it was a good talk. And at the end, Robert Anton Wilson gets up. And he goes, hi, I'm Bob. And I go, oh, I know. He goes, so, uh, want to come around for a you know, cup of coffee or beer? I'm like, well, sure. Yeah. Where? What? And, you know, he lived, it turns out he lives around the corner, literally around the corner from the Capitola Book Cafe in this little apartment. You know, this is garden apartment kind of a thing. You know, a one-bedroom condo or rental uh, around the back of this strip mall in uh, Capitola, California, and uh, and his wife is there. and pops open a couple of beers, and uh, we just talk about stuff. You know, sure, a little bit of James Joyce, a little bit about Siberia and the future of nonlinear culture, but uh, it kind of just felt like I was sitting there with my with my uncle. You know, it was it was the first. And um, I, I dare say, only time I've ever met one of my heroes and not been disappointed, you know, not been. I don't mean that he was he was living up to this status of superstar, but I was not disappointed in that what I found was A totally human, human being was a guy who was regular and who put all of his weirdness, his creativity, his thought, his philosophy into his work. You know, that's where it belongs. And when he's sitting in the room with you, he's Bob sitting in the room with you. And it taught me at a pretty early age of around 30, I guess, um, never to worry about that other stuff, you know. To stay me as unadulterated and as unaffected by whatever might happen or however people might see me, whether they're looking up to me one year or down at me the next, um, that it's just me, that I'm just a guy. And here to help other people uh, make it on their own journeys. And uh, more than anything I've read, more than anything he uh, specifically taught me, um, just being with me uh, with no affect and no effort uh, was like, I imagine what it's like, you know, when two Tibetan... you know, Lama master dudes you know, find each other in the mountains you know, they don't have some long conversation about the Buddha or something when one master finds another they just sit together you know, they just sit and um, that's what Bob taught me and uh, may his legacy live on
2: This is Ansharo Ali, and I'm going to be reading from my book, uh, The Eighth Circuit Brain, Navigational Strategies for the Energetic Body. I'm going to be reading from the final section of the book, um, section called How I Got This Way, um, and that chapter in that section uh, called The Cosmic Trigger Effect, or How I Met Robert Anton Wilson in the No Coincidences Department. Spring 1979, Berkeley, California. I'm sitting on the couch in Robert Anton Wilson's living room, dumbfounded by the rapid-fire laughter and sheer brain power of the intelligentsia bouncing off the walls around me. At 26 years old, I was clearly the youngest person in the room, the baby of this Illuminati of scientists, authors, mathematicians, magicians, and discordians. The person who stood out beyond all the other lights in the room was Arlen Wilson. Bob's wife Arlen struck me as almost mythic, wizened, yet totally human. A full-bodied woman with a body sense of humor and an astonishing literary intellect. There was also something about Arlen that was peculiar complex, simultaneously severe and merciful, but very kind. Arlen was also clearly Bob's muse. A serene, elegant-looking fellow with a well-clipped beard walked over to me and introduced himself as a discordian. He shook my hand, saying, Greg Hill. I remembered his name from cosmic trigger as the author of the infamous discordian manifesto principia discordia he asked me why i was there i told him i didn't know yet but i had been invited by a friend after telling her about my writer's block greg asked me what i was writing i shared a few plot details from as the worm turns a psychic soap opera a stage play i was trying to write and he cracked up he walked over to where bob was sitting and started talking I couldn't hear what they were saying over the buzz of words ricocheting off the walls like so much flying lasagna, but Bob was laughing. I felt lightheaded. My gaze drifted over to the window and the night sky beyond. That's when I saw it. A slowly moving point of light paralleling the horizon, took a sudden 90-degree vertical turn straight up and kept climbing. I sat there transfixed when I heard my name being called. Entereau. Entereau. It was Bob. Greg says you're writing a psychic soap opera. Any chance you can give it a virgin reading at the next salon? My jaw must have dropped because my words came out Sounding funny. Uh, Yes, I can, definitely can, yeah. Um, I can have the first draft, for sure, uh, ready in a month. Um, My gaze drifted back over to the window, and there was that light again. Only this time it was blinking. Or rather, winking? At me? I knew why they called UFOs unidentifiable flying objects now. I didn't know what it was, and that somehow made me feel very, very happy. One month later, As the Worm Turns was finished, or the stage play was finished, and it was just in time for Bob's next Discordian salon. I was stoked. My new play was scheduled for a virgin reading with Pope Bob himself. I also became a certified pope that night, well, at least according to the little yellow card Greg Hill gave me when I arrived with seven copies of my play stuffed under my arm. There I was again, sitting on a couch in Robert Anton Wilson's living room, wondering whether I would see another UFO, but mostly just plain wondering. The place was hopping. Jack Sarfati and Saul Paul Sirag, two cutting-edge quantum theorists, were riffing on something traveling faster than a speeding photon. They were jazzed about a superluminal theory that claimed information traveled faster than the speed of light. A wiry, heavily bearded, bespectacled Saul reminded me of Allen Ginsberg's younger brother. Jack struck me as a kind of medieval science fiction wizard, brilliant, mercurial, totally present and not completely there. I sat there dumbfounded in the crossfire of the superluminal highway. Later that night, Bob was in fine form reading excerpts from his upcoming book, The Trick Top Hat, from his Schrodinger's Cat Trilogy. I sat there astonished by the highly compact, information-rich writing style he had developed. It was as if every other word triggered a different Chemical in my brain. Bob had this unique way with words that acted on my ear brain loop just like drugs. I remember thinking to myself, this is what writing is all about. Writing is about magic. After the initial round of quantum banter and raucous limericks died down, Bob Bob loved them, naughty Irish limericks, Arlen asked me to assign roles in my play to those who wanted to read. I assigned her the role of Sylvia, the trance medium who channeled the ghost of Marilyn Monroe. I gave Bob the part of Frank, her droll husband, in charge of putting Sylvia into a trance, and after the spook left her, bringing his wife back into her body. They both got a big kick out of that idea, maybe bigger than I'll ever know. The reading went far beyond my heightened expectations, and after a short break, the subatomic socializing fired up again. Now, at this point, I should mention that Bob and Arwen's previous salon inspired me to create, with my limited cartoon panel talent, An entire deck of Neo-Tarot cards based on the premises of Greg Hill's book, Principia Discordia. And specifically on the wildly decentralizing central principle of the Holy Cow. Uh, Pronounced cow, you know, Holy Cow as in uh, a cow, A-C-H-A-O, a cow representing a single unit of chaos. I called the Zero card in this deck, No form and named the number one card, The Holy Cow, and the number 1.5 card, The Cowboy. I showed my cards to Greg. Nodding his head while slowly flipping through the deck, he mumbles, You're one of us. He then showed me a tarot spread he called Five Card Katma, a kind of Discordian five-card stud or evolutionary poker, where the winner was decided by the best creation story told using your final five cards. I asked Greg how he could tell which one was the best story. His pause created a big moment for me. He said, you'll know. It'll be obvious. Sometimes the best story is the funniest. Sometimes it's the saddest one. Other times it's the most bizarre, but, you know, usually people know right away which story is the best. I asked him, but what if there are two best stories? He laughed out loud and said, well, I suppose then we enter sudden death. Certain books can change your life, and Cosmic Trigger changed mine. Though it was not the first book to blur the lines between... Reality and Fantasy, it was the first one to suggest that no such lines existed beyond my beliefs in those lines. It was the first book to challenge my beliefs about beliefs, period. Bob's Way with Words acted like drugs on my brain, and reading this book set off a chain reaction of time-release psychic explosions lasting many years to come. Cosmic Trigger was also where I first discovered Timothy Leary's Eight circuit brain model. The Bob Wilson I came to know circa 1979 through 1986, approximately, was at the peak of his game. And as far as I could tell, this game was initiating his readers in books and in person during his many worldwide lectures to the most operational Einsteinian language possible and to do this in the most entertaining ways his imagination could conjure. I was, and still am, bewildered by how he was able to recontextualize quantum physics through the interactions of his fictitious characters and labyrinthian plot designs in the Schrodinger's Cat Trilogy, and also the masks of the Illuminati. Though Bob was clearly a master of this game, I never saw him treat actual living people as characters, or their interactions as games. He knew the difference, and he took the time to show others that he knew. Bob was very soulful that way. He seemed to simultaneously belong to two generations, the caregivers of the World War II era, and the hedonic seekers of the 60s, the baby boomers. I suddenly saw Bob as a psychedelic Mensch with a genius IQ, which for me was as hilarious as it rang true. As I continued attending Bob and Arlen's Discordian salons, now at their new home in a San Francisco condo, I began to notice a change in my attitude. Though my presence remained one of a gleeful fly on the wall who Occasionally buzzed agreement. I also began to see important differences distinguishing Bob's views from my own. I did not voice these at first for dread of appearing arrogant or stupid, but I, I did not disregard them either. One of the downsides of being in the personal presence of people with more brains and heart than yourself is a kind of gorgeous oppression that took the form, well, for me, of wanting to be just like Bob, or wanting to write just like Bob. At the next salon, Bob announced, disciples are assholes looking for a human being to attach themselves to. Well, that was the moment I knew there would be no guru worship at Bob's house, and that Bob would never wish that kind of oppression on anyone. Though I never felt any oppression from Bob personally, I do recall struggling in his presence with my own unmet and often unconscious childhood needs for a father figure. I never knew my real father growing up. As with many other young fans, my own star-struck projections oppressed me more than anything else. That he never encouraged or even accepted these projections enabled me to eventually release them and observe him closer as, as he was with little or no emotional investment. What I saw... Was a man fully inhabiting a world of his own creation, a sophisticated, entertaining, and Byzantine network of reality tunnels where his consciousness traversed and cross-referenced with astonishing artistry and humor. Whether he was high or sober, I noticed that whenever anyone questioned Bob, a consistent delay of silence followed. It was as if he was so abstracted into his internal labyrinth that it took him a few moments to gather his response and surface with it into present time. I began to wonder whether Bob had lost the capacity for direct experience and spontaneous response by living so profoundly in the multiple reality tunnels of his epic mind. Since I did not know Bob before his daughter Luna was murdered in the mid-70s, I cannot say how deeply this trauma changed him. Having lost a daughter of my own, I know firsthand how that outside shock can alter consciousness for the rest of your life. How that goes depends, I think, on how committed one remains to staying emotionally open throughout the loss and coming out the other side intact. Funny thing about Bob and emotions. I never heard him say a good word about emotions, which he humorously dismissed as territorial signals, or barnyard politics, or soap opera antics. If Bob possessed a certain freedom from territorial signals, I think they acted out anyway, whenever he felt or perceived that his publishers were withholding royalties, or that his books were not getting the recognition they deserved. Bob seemed um, emotionally invested in his legacy as a writer. He also showed strong emotion whenever he protested any form of government oppression of the people. All these personal protests revealed his humanity to me. Something else. Despite all his so-called extraterrestrial communiques with the Sirius star system, and his own Pookaville of invisible rabbits, Bob consistently struck me as one of the most authentically sane people I had ever met. Spring 1981, Berkeley, California. My presence at the Discordian salons began to wane as I grew more aware of certain key differences between my views and Bob's. The main difference had to do with the body. I decided that Tim, Tim Leary, and Bob overlooked the body when writing their tomes on the Eighth Circuit brain. Though they certainly wrote about the body, their language was still steeped in the language of the mind, of spelling things out in rational and scientific terms that stimulated the intellect but failed, in my opinion, in its appeal to the senses. This awareness marked a critical weaning stage for me. Two years later, summer 1983, Boulder, Colorado. My bohemian California lifestyle ground to a halt. I had unwittingly become a parody of myself and was desperate for a big change. For me, this meant getting serious about my 30 year old life. I migrated to Boulder, Colorado. Within a year, I was married, and soon afterwards, a father. In the summer of 1985, I co-produced Bob Wilson's first visit to Boulder to talk about one of his favorite topics, anomalies, coincidence, and synchronicity. I remember Bob reveling in the exquisite irony and high humor staged by the venue we booked him in, a church, complete with stained-glass windows, A multi-tiered altar and rows and rows of stained wood pews. I opened with a brief solo mime shtick, and then Bob, the Pope of Chapel Perilous, preached to the choir. A relic in good time was had by all.
3: Okay, so I'm living in Dublin for a year, and I'm young, and my brain is pretty much smashed wide open. My friend Bill sends me a book in the mail. It takes a while to get there. It's called Prometheus Rising. It's by Robert Anton Wilson. And Bill and I had spent many good times over the years exploring reality in, um, let's just say, in all kinds of different ways. I had also taken a class at UC Berkeley Uh, on theory of knowledge, kind of undergraduate stuff. So I'd already been wasting a lot of time. Wasting? Spending? I don't know. Thinking about the nature of reality, of how we perceive reality, and how it, you know, probably doesn't really exist, at least in no way that we can conceive of. And these can be very disturbing thoughts. To this day, I don't know if going through all of that philosophical insanity was good for me or not. But Prometheus Rising fit right into it and was a good laugh on top of it all and just felt like the absolutely right thing. It made sense. It made sense. Robert Anton Wilson made sense. So I continued reading Wilson, And having all these many thoughts and trying to explain, explain, expand, explain, expand my brain. And it brought me many friends. It's interesting. I met a lot of people who were into Wilson. It seemed to be some kind of branding device, a marker, where if it came up in conversation and someone was into Wilson, you knew. You had more than just a little... Favorite author in common, you had a pretty big take on the whole world that might have something significant in common. For some reason, almost 100% of these people that I met out in the world in my travels were male. I met one woman who had that response the Ah, Wilson, let's talk response. So I met incredible people, mostly male around this whole experience of sharing Wilson as a jumping-off point for discussing reality and what we make of the world and what we want of it and what we want of our minds. The people attracted to Wilson and to these readings really ran the gamut. There seemed to be some commonality. A lot of the people were, and probably still are, Kind of weirdos, in some way or another, a lot of freaks and geeks, which seemed perfectly satisfactory to me, and a lot of um, a lot of people who had journeyed a lot into their consciousness and perhaps other consciousnesses as well uh, and taken various routes to get there. there seemed to be a profound level of dissatisfaction among these people too, which I certainly shared. There was dissatisfaction with the world, with how people look at the whole idea of the world, of reality, dissatisfaction with politics, and often dissatisfaction with one's sense of personal power, where we are in the world, what we can do about it, whether we matter, whether we really wield any power at all compared to all the big guys who run the place. And that was part of the fun, of the conspiracy aspect of these conversations. Of course, many people seemed to take those really literally and really seriously in a way that I thought was completely anti-Wilson. But um whatever, that was just my thought. So part of why I admire... Bob is that he set in motion uh, really an entire subculture of people who were probably ready to come together over other writings and other themes anyway, but he really sparked people. And I felt delighted and giggly and honored to be part of this whole thing. Out of those people, um, <clears throat> One was one of my closest friends. One was a date rapist, as I found out the hard way, on mescaline. One was just a really cool guy that I got to know for about a year and still correspond with online. That woman I mentioned, we only had one conversation, but she was cool. Some other people that I knew that were into the whole thing turned out to be on-and-off acquaintances Uh, through the early days of the internet revolution, quote-unquote, and the whole cyberdelic scenario of the early 90s. So it wasn't just that I'd read something that blew my mind, it was that I had also been immersed with a whole bunch of people. That, to me, is super-duper valuable. So I guess I'm throwing out thanks to all of you listening to this, because you're probably one of that group, too, or you wouldn't be listening. Um, and, and to Bob for, uh, for putting it out there so that people had something to attach themselves to, to discuss, and, um, and sometimes have a good laugh over, which I think was a very important point of what he was writing and promulgating. With that, I'm going to end this little segment. I'm Tiffany. Uh, Tiffany Lee Brown is my name, aka Magdalene. Anyway, I'm glad everybody's getting together to uh, to fly the flag and to say thanks.
4: Hey, everybody! Joseph Matheny here. This crazy audiobook was my idea, so you can blame me for it. You know, I miss Bob. I met him the first time in 1988 in Chicago. Um, I cornered him outside one of his lectures that I went to and got into a really good conversation with him about Timothy Leary's Mind Mirror program, which I just got my hands on at the time. Uh, I moved to Santa Cruz, California the next year and stayed in touch with Bob via mail and phone. Um, And I invited Bob up to do uh, a lecture in Santa Cruz, which became the video now for sale called The Eye in the Triangle. Um, not too long after that, Bob moved himself moved up to Santa Cruz. I think he wanted to be near his kids, and I think he'd had about enough of L.A., and uh, I can commiserate with that, and uh, settled down and started hanging out with me and some other people in a group we had called the Formless Ocean Group, or the FOG, for shorthand. It was actually a very interesting group, uh, rotating personnel. Uh, the regulars were myself, Bob, Nina Graboy, Elizabeth Gipps, Patty Long, uh, Bob Forty, Nick Herbert, a bunch of other people uh, in and out. Ralph Abraham came over a lot. Um, Timothy Leary would drop in if he was in town or coming through. John Lilly, um, the McKenna brothers, Dennis and Terrence. Um, all in all, it was, a, it was a great little group, and we just kind of hung out and uh, studied literature and talked about psychedelics and talked about uh, religion and spirituality and pretty much anything we thought was worthy of our uh, Of our time. And in doing so, um, it came to light that uh, Bob had a car, but he didn't drive, which was kind of odd. He was like Salvador Dali in that respect. Um, So I ended up becoming uh, his driver. So I drove him around to his gigs, the ones in California, um, and uh, kind of de facto became a bodyguard of sorts or a body shield of sorts. Uh, when you traveled with Robert Anton Wilson, a lot of times you would arrive at the venue and there would be people there to greet him who were um, enthusiastic fans, let's put it that way. And a lot of them had some secret of the universe they wanted to either give to him or get from him, depending on who it was. So one story that I remember is um, when we went to San Rafael and there was there was a uh, conference that was being put on by Sound Photosynthesis, and I don't recall the name of the conference, um, but I do remember that when we pulled up and we walked out of the car, and we were walking towards the front of the venue because it was the San Rafael Auditorium or something like that. Um, we couldn't get into the back door, so we had to walk in through the front door. Which, you know, arriving with Robert Anton Wilson through the front door, not always a good idea, but we had to do it. So we we went on went in, and as we were walking to the door to get to the stage, I noticed that there was about four different people vectoring in on us from different directions, um, and I could see by the look in their eye and the The uh, purpose in their step that they were definitely coming to get or give secrets of the universe. And I knew that we were running late. So what I did was I turned around and I thought, you know, what would a good Discordian do in this situation? And the first thing that came to my mind was to shout something. And I said, you heard the man. Get him a donut. And everybody froze and got a look on their face and then kind of jittered and turned around and went looking for a donut. And in that window... We went on into the green room. Um, the other time that I remember, which was a little personal, uh, uh, you know, um, moment for me, was when uh, I took Bob to meet, uh, to meet with George Carlin. George was doing a show in San Rafael again, um, and they were friends. And so I drove. I drove him up to the, uh, to the show. We went backstage, and we hung out with George Carlin. And then afterwards, we hung out in an all-night diner and got donuts, I'm not kidding you. So there's a synchronicity there between the donuts because the George Carlin Rabbit on Wilson late night Zim donut uh, thing happened after I shouted about donuts in the same auditorium in two different times. Um, so I just wanted to leave you with that. So wherever you are now, Bob, I'm sure that you're flinging the lasagna, and I'm sure that there's people who are running around and getting you donuts.
5: You're listening to the Psychedelic Salon, where people are changing their lives one thought at a time.
0: And that lovely voice that you just heard is the one and only Black Beauty, who you can hear each month in her BB's Bungalow podcast over on the Cannabis Podcast Network at dopefiend.co.uk. And uh, speaking of my friend the Dope Fiend, I want to congratulate him on his recent 300th podcast. Uh, You know, every Monday, as regular as clockwork, there's a new podcast from The Dope Fiend. And uh, I'm happy to say and proud to say that I've listened to every one of them. Not only uh, do I kind of think of The Dope Fiend as as an elder, simply because I've followed a lot of the good advice he's uh, given, but uh, his podcasts also feature uh, what has grown into a whole company of characters who feel like old friends to me, uh, even though I haven't met any of them. So, if you haven't done so already, you might want to surf over to dopefiend.co.uk and uh, sample a selection of the various programs available for free on that network. And uh, Dope Fiend, my congratulations, best wishes for the future, and much love go out to you, my friend. As Terrence McKenna often said, keep the old faith and stay high. Also, I want to mention that the Terrence McKenna Beyond 2012 workshop uh, that's being held in Sierra Madre, California on Saturday has been sold out for a few weeks now. And uh, if you weren't able to get a ticket in time, I'm really sorry that I won't be seeing you there. But as the uh, next best thing, I hope to be podcasting much of the program. And uh, if all goes well, there will also be a video recording uh, made and posted on the net. Now, the one thing that you won't see online is the new Terrence McKenna film that Ken Adams will be previewing at the workshop. As you may already know, uh, Ken was a neighbor of Terrence's from 1989 to 1993, and he still has about 100 hours of as yet unseen video of Terrence that he shot during those years. And uh, after having seen a preliminary version of the movie, I'm, uh, well, I'm willing to say that it is by far the very best uh, video of Terrence McKenna yet made. In fact, uh, thanks to the superb graphics that uh, provide the backdrop for the words of McKenna, uh, well, it's uh, maybe the first time that I've really uh, been able to kind of grok some of Terrence's more challenging ideas, like uh, the world is made of language. You know, it's uh, truly a remarkable work of art that, uh, while centered on the words coming from the mouth of the Bard McKenna, it uh, carries several levels of meaning uh, in each of its uh, 12 segments, uh, thanks to the marvelous graphics. I'll be saying a lot more about this movie in a future podcast, but if you'd like to see a preview of this film, you can go to www.tmckx.com, and there you'll also find some screenshots that will give you a little better idea of some of the high-quality graphics that Ken has created for this project. In short, uh, well, they're the best I've seen in any psychedelic film, and uh, well, and stay tuned for another announcement about this project in the weeks ahead. So that's uh, all of the announcements for today, but uh, that also means that it's time to get to the news from the worldwide Occupy movement. And while there hasn't been a lot of reporting about it in the mainstream media, that doesn't mean that nothing's happening. Uh, Quite the contrary. And while critics of the movement are still trying to claim that it's been ineffective, uh, well, I'd like to point out that just the other day, without any hoopla at all, Congress gave the president the okay to raise the debt ceiling another $1.2 trillion. Now, if you remember back to this past summer, all we heard from Washington was fighting about raising the debt ceiling. Now, uh, suddenly, that issue seems to have become just another routine vote, and uh, the president, most politicians, and even the financial elite at Davos this week are focusing on income inequality and are even talking about that dreaded bugaboo class war. You know, uh, one day Congress is ready to pass the uh, Censor the Internet SOPA bill, and uh, the day after a few thousand people occupied Congress and a few hundred thousand Occupy-oriented people around the country phoned and emailed their congressional representative, well, the day after Congress was occupied, SOPA was taken off the table and stuffed back in its cage. Now, if you want to, you can uh, say that all that would have happened anyway without the Occupy movement, and, uh, well, you may be right. But you'll never convince me that the movement isn't already making things happen that had been kind of lying dormant for decades. So today, rather than play sound bites from some of the more in-your-face actions, I'm going to uh, play a couple interviews. But first, I'd like to read a short quote from Alexa Bradley, who wrote, The beauty of Occupy is that it's popular, wild, free. I don't mean that in a romantic sense, although there is that appeal too, and it is part of its magnetism in the all-too-cynical time. I mean it in a political and social sense. It exists outside the non-profit framework that is all too captive to a set of assumptions, norms, limits, and needs. The resonance globally of Occupy is its clear roots in popular sentiment and movement. Not a professionalized staff or agenda, its power rests in the fact that is, it is uncircumscribed and therefore perhaps infinite in its circumference. It's a happening, not an issue, occupies a spirit that should not be contained or funneled into a single issue orientation. And then, uh, from our fellow Saloner Andrew M, I received this email: "Dear Lorenzo, I've been enjoying your podcast for the past year and enjoy especially hearing your perspectives and the great job you've done in connecting the tribe." I thought you might be interested in seeing some new exciting ideas that have come out of the Occupy movement here in Canada. I forgot which podcast it was, but I remember the Bard McKenna saying that the 2012 shift could be something as simple as a website. There's a good chance he was right on the money. We are starting to build tools that would pirate our parliaments and all power to the people app. Anyways, thought you might be interested in seeing what us young folks are up to. Keep up the fantastic podcast. They are the, and in quotes, with a wink, second. They are the second best food I know for the imagination. And then he provided three links, one that is a short essay about their uh, idea, the next is a prototype parliament, and then a rap video that describes their ideas in a more accessible rap form. And uh, I'll post those links in the program notes for this podcast, which, as you know, you can get to via psychedelicsalon.us. And uh, thanks for sending that news, Andrew. Uh, You guys are doing some really wonderful things, and it's a real honor to have you as a part of the salon. Also, I want to give a shout-out to our fellow saloners in New Zealand who had managed to hold out for 100 days of awareness-raising protests. And uh, we'll be waiting to see what you do for Phase 2, which I understand is already underway. And I also have it on good authority that the ideas of Terence McKenna have been floating around down there for a very long time as well. So uh, thanks for what you're doing, Occupy New Zealand. Now I'm going to play a few segments that I've recorded for you uh, that better sum up what this struggle is all about here in the States. At least uh, one of the focuses of the struggle, the the beginning focus, Occupy Wall Street. And I realize that some of our fellow saloners in Europe are already tired of hearing about the Occupy movement. But not only is it here to stay, it's uh, really not a U.S.-led movement. You know, as models, we have the Arab Spring and then the great people of Spain, Italy and other places to lead the way. But the reason that I think that what happens in the states is important is that, well, in my opinion, Wall Street is a primary bad guy, both here and worldwide. And the screwheads at the top of the Wall Street firms are the ones who, uh, well, quite literally, they own the U.S. government. You see, by uh, giving the status of a living human being to corporations and removing all barriers to corporate involvement in our elections, the U.S. Supreme Court has effectively ended democracy in this country. And that means that we the people are pissed. But rather than have me try to explain the uh, seriousness of this issue, I'm first going to play a few minutes that, uh, about I guess 10 or 15 minutes, that I've taken from a three hour long interview that Chris Hedges gave on our C-SPAN 2 channel on the first day of this year. And in it, you'll hear this Pulitzer Prize winning journalist explain how corporate personhood isn't just a threat to American democracy, it's a threat to humanity itself. And following that, I'm going to play a short speech for you that Senator Bernie Sanders gave on the Senate floor as he introduced an amendment to the U.S. Constitution that will strip personhood from corporations. And while there weren't many other senators in the chamber when he gave his speech, uh, I predict that a 100 years from now, this will be played in schools across the land as the speech that saved the nation. So, uh, (laughs) how's that for a dramatic introduction? But... In all seriousness, I really believe that. And uh, after those two kind of uh, heavy-duty pieces, I'm going to lighten it up with a two-minute clip of country music star Willie Nelson and his wife reading a poem that Willie wrote about the Occupy movement. And uh, since he is one of the favorites of many of the Tea Party people, uh, that will perhaps drive them to despair. Or better yet, maybe Willie's support may be a reason for the Tea Party supporters to take a closer look and discover how much the two groups have in common. And uh, if you live overseas and don't know who Willie Nelson is, uh, it may amuse you to learn that he is possibly the only really well-known stoner who is very beloved by almost every redneck conservative in the country. And uh, Willie's been publicly on the legalized cannabis side for a long time. Uh, He's uh, a real crossover star and a great hero of the cannabis community over here. Finally, uh, I'm going to close with a song that was written and is sung by a young man from Salt Lake City named Noel. And uh, this is from a YouTube video I found where Noel was singing on day one of the Occupy Salt Lake City Street Theater. So, uh, let me cue those up and get them ready to play, and uh, after I do that, I'm going to start packing for my little jaunt up to L.A. for this weekend's workshop with Bruce Damer, Ken Adams, and musician-composer Constance Demby. And uh, if all goes well, we'll be hearing some of those workshop sessions in future podcasts. But right now, here is Chris Hedges, Bernie Sanders, Willie Nelson and his wife, and singer-songwriter Noel from Occupy Salt Lake City. Chris
5: Hedges, in your most recent book, The World As It Is, Dispatches on the Myth on, on human pro- of Human Progress, you write, brace yourself, the American empire is over and the descent is going to be horrifying. How did you come to that conclusion?
6: Well, first of all, I spent 20 years on the outer reaches of empire as a foreign correspondent. So I've seen an aspect of empire that most people have not, unless you're in the military or perhaps the foreign service. Uh, and I think uh, all of the red signs, the, the sort of red warning signs, are there. I think also the fact that I spent so long outside the United States gave me a kind of perspective when I returned. Uh, I understood how radically the country had changed in the two decades that I was away. I think for those who had remained in, within the borders of the United States, those changes had been more incremental and perhaps less perceptible.
5: What are some of the symptoms, the signs, that the American well, the, empire is Well, The over-
6: biggest sign is uh, the fact that we are following the trajectory of all empires, which is that they expand beyond their capacity to sustain themselves. Uh, we have run up the largest deficits in human history, which in the bottom line is we can't repay it. We have done so at the cost of our infrastructure, our public education, our working class. Uh, we're hollowing the country out from the inside and the physical evidence is all around us. Uh, plunging roughly one-third of Americans into poverty or near poverty according to the latest statistics. Uh, our bridges, our roads are collapsing. Uh, libraries are being closed. Fire stations are being closed. These are the signs of a nation or, or let's call it an empire uh, that uh, is reaching a kind of uh, a terminal point. Uh, and um, uh, and, and if we don't radically rechart our, our course, uh, then uh, the collapse is going to be very frightening and very chaotic.
5: In Empire of Illusion, which you wrote and published in 2009, you write, Those captive to images cast ballots based on how candidates make them feel. They vote for a slogan, a smile, perceived sincerity, and attractiveness, along with the carefully crafted personal narrative of the candidate it is style and story not content in fact that inform mass politics
6: precisely and uh... the uh, structure of the corporate state uh... as well as uh... the imperial state remains untouched uh... It, it doesn't really matter which political party holds office uh... the policies of george w bush have been assiduously carried out uh... for the large part by barack obama Uh, And even figures like Dick Cheney have confirmed this, whether it is the so-called war on terror, the refusal to restore habeas corpus, uh, the eavesdropping, wiretapping, and monitoring of tens of millions of Americans, which under our Constitution uh, should be illegal, uh, passed for the FISA Reform Act, which Barack Obama supported, whether it is the looting of the U.S. Treasury on behalf of Wall Street. uh, All of these are policies uh, which are bipartisan. Uh, And that is because we have undergone, I think, in the last few decades, a kind of slow motion coup d'etat, a corporate coup d'etat, whereby the citizen is rendered impotent, and it is solely the interests of corporations, uh, which are paramount uh, within the circles of the power elite. I mean, one could take many examples, but Obamacare would be a good one. Uh, I share the right wing's critique of Obamacare. It's a disastrous bill. Uh, It was written by corporate lobbyists, 2,000 pages of it. Uh, It is essentially the equivalent of the bank bailout bill for the pharmaceutical and insurance industry, $400 billion in subsidies. Meanwhile, uh, the White House handed out exemptions uh, because these corporations do not want to insure uh, chronically ill children. I mean, think of it in moral terms. It really means that we live in a country where it is now legally permissible for corporations for-profit corporations to hold sick children hostage while their parents frantically bankrupt themselves trying to save their sons or daughters. This is the kind of world the corporate state creates. And uh, and the Democrats uh, and the Republicans are both handmaidens of corporate interests, In, which is why Congress has such a low approval rating. I mean, the American public's not fooled by this.
5: In 2010, death of the liberal class came out. Here's a quote. The election of Obama was one more triumph of illusion over substance. It was a skillful manipulation and betrayal of the public by a corporate power elite. We mistook style and ethnicity, an advertising tactic pioneered by Calvin Klein and Benetton, for progressive politics
6: and genuine change." Sure. Obama functioned as a brand. Now remember 2008, the financial collapse, Wall Street was terrified. Uh, They thought they'd been found out Uh, They thought they would have to pay a price for their criminal activity, fraudulent activity, and malfeasance. And Obama functioned uh, as as a brand in the same way that people of color or HIV-positive models were used by Benetton and Calvin Klein uh, to associate their products with a risque lifestyle and progressive politics. But as with the function of all brands, we confused a brand with an experience, uh, Obama won Advertising Ages Top Annual Award Marketer of the Year uh, uh, because the professionals knew precisely what he had done. He beat Nike, Apple, Zappos. Uh, and, and that's what he was. He, uh, you know, to quote Cornell West, became a, essentially a black mascot for Wall Street.
5: One of the themes in a lot of your books is criticism of liberals. Why?
6: Because the liberal class was never meant to function as the political left the liberal class was meant to function as the political center and i spent a lot of time in death of the liberal class going back to the radical and populist movements uh, at the turn of the century which were very powerful uh... anarcho syndicalist unions like the wobblies the old cio eugene debs the socialist candidate for president uh... pulled almost six percent of the vote nine hundred thousand votes in nineteen twelve publications like Appeal to Reason and the Masses which were socialist publications had wide circulations. Appeal to Reason was the fourth uh, most widely read uh, periodical in the country at the time before the war uh, and uh, we had about two or three dozen socialist mayors. Well what happened was the war itself uh, and Wilson had run for reelection in 1912 on the slogan he kept us out of the war but with a collapse of uh, the Eastern Front uh, with Tsarist Russia, the collapse of Tsarist Russia and the Bolshevik Revolution. Uh, there was the capacity of the Germans to send, I think, upwards of 100 divisions to the Western Front. And the bankers on Wall Street, who had lent tremendous sums of money to the British and the French, were terrified that, that uh, if, they lost, if the British and French lost the war, they'd lose their money. Uh, So there was heavy pressure on the White House, aided by the Kaiser's decision to begin to try and create a naval blockade around Britain, which sank three or four American ships, uh, to go into the war. But it had no popular support. And we created, and I spent a lot of time writing about this in Death of the Liberal Class, the first system of modern mass propaganda the committee for public information known as popularly as the Creel Commission because it was headed by a figure named George Creel Uh, now the Committee for Public Information and the sort of uh, you know dark figure the the uh, grand inquisitor type figure becomes Walter Lippmann who ends up writing a public opinion in 1922 sort of the blueprint for control manufacturing consent is his phrase and it's how you use propaganda effectively uh, to manufacture consent. And you don't actually need the harsher measures of the Espionage Act and the Sedition Act, uh, except for the most recalcitrant forces or radical forces. Randolph Bourne, Jane Addams, Debs himself ends up going to prison. Uh, but propaganda becomes, uh, in the, in, the, in the right hands, in the hands of the state, uh, a, a much more effective tool, uh, to herd people where you want them. And uh, the most important thing about the Committee for Public Information is that it drew on the understanding of crowd psychology or mass psychology pioneered by figures like Le Bon, Trotter, and of course Sigmund Freud. That people were not moved uh, by fact or reason, but manipulated by emotion. And, uh, and, and this system of mass propaganda, uh, which created a kind of uh, permanent fear uh, of, of, of course, the Hun uh... was transferred the moment the war was over to the dreaded red and there's a great writer i like very much dwight Macdonald, who writes of this period and he said essentially the war world war one was the rock on which these movements broke now this is absolutely vital to understanding what happened to american democracy because these movements never took formal political power and yet they were the true correctives to in, in terms of opening up our democracy, the Liberty Party that fought slavery, the suffragists, the labor movement, later the civil rights movement. Uh, these were movements uh, that pressured the liberal class to respond.
5: Lucius Sorrentino emails into you, Mr. Hedges. The Occupy movement has been criticized for not having a political agenda, aim, or purpose other than creating an Internet mem the 99% versus the 1%, and drawing attention to the problem. What do you see as the future of Occupy Wall Street as f- insofar as political activism goes?
6: I disagree that it doesn't have a message. I think the message is very clear. And the message is the corporate coup has to be reversed. Uh, the corporate overlords have to go. Uh, I covered the revolutions in uh, East Germany, Czechoslovakia, and finally Romania. And we used to hear the same criticisms uh, leveled against the organizers, for instance, in East Germany, that they, what are your demands? Well, uh, the uh, movement understands that, um, you know, there, there are certainly things that I think most people within the Occupy movement would support are revoking corporate personhood, uh, campaign finance. Uh, a serious jobs program, especially directed at the Young, a moratorium on uh, foreclosures and bank repossessions, all of which I support and all of which I think are important, Uh, but they're not going to come uh, as long as the political system is held hostage uh, to corporate interests, as long as we live in what Sheldon Wolin calls this system of inverted totalitarianism. Uh, And so they keep it focused on the fundamental problem, and and of course the powerly uh, criticize it criticizes the movement for not making specific demands, for not funneling this energy back into a dead system. Uh, And I think the most telling moment for me uh, came when there was a coordinated effort uh, by 18 cities to shut down Occupy encampments, uh, including in uh, Oakland, uh, L.A., New York. And uh, for me, that uh, was an indication of how Mm tone-deaf and out-of-touch those in power are. The idea that they could physically eradicate mm. these movements and you not address the injustices and uh, suffering uh, that had given birth to these movements. Uh, if uh, they functioned as a liberal class should function, uh, let's go back to Roosevelt and Wallace, if they uh, were serious about attempting to save corporate capitalism, they would have immediately announced a one trillion dollar jobs program targeted at uh... people under the age of twenty five a moratorium on uh... on uh... bank repossessions and foreclosures uh, and uh... uh... forgiving one trillion dollars in student debt i mean these would have been the kinds of steps uh... that might have been able to begin to ameliorate the anger uh... the legitimate anger that has gripped uh, many 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 americans and yet they think they can use A militarized police forces, and I've been in the middle of it. I mean, this is like being in a Star Wars movie. They're uh, stormtroopers, in essence. uh, Command helicopters up in the sky. These are peaceful protests, uh, directing traffic. uh, uh, You know, uh, instances of very brutal behavior: pepper spraying, beating. I was arrested outside Goldman Sachs. People were being slammed into the cement. Uh, To think that they can counter this by force, I think, is deeply misguided and shows how out of touch those in power are. In terms of political figures, I don't believe that given the configurations of our political system, uh, we are going to mount uh, a serious challenge to it through the electoral process. I think the challenge will come through the Occupy movements, uh, and I don't think these movements are going away. Uh, You know, uh, when you cover the revolutions in Eastern Europe, you became very cognizant uh, of that timetables were impossible to predict. Uh, overthrowing the communist regime in poland took uh, ten years uh... in east germany it took ten weeks and in czechoslovakia it took ten days uh... no one really knows these movements have a kind of life of their own how they spring uh... you know i was in leipzig uh... on the afternoon of november 9th, nineteen eighty nine with the leaders of the east german opposition and they said well maybe within a year there'll be free passage back and forth across the Berlin Wall. Within a matter of hours, the Berlin Wall, at least as an impediment to human traffic, no longer existed. Uh, And that was a huge lesson for me, that even those most closely associated with these movements don't know where they're going, and and oftentimes don't even know what their potential is. Um, So uh, I put my faith in movements.
5: In his 2005 book, Losing Moses on the Freeway, The Ten Commandments in America, Mr. Hedges writes. We watch impassively as the wealthy and the elite, the huge corporations rob us, ruin the environment, defraud consumers and taxpayers and create an exclusive American oligarchy that fuses wealth and political power. We watch passively because we believe we can enter the club. It is greed that keeps us silent.
6: The world's a big place, uh, but certainly the most powerful entities are these huge corporations. Corporations like Goldman Sachs, for instance. Uh, because I spent so much of my life in the developing world, places like Africa, Latin America, and the Middle East, uh, just to give you a small example, uh, I saw what happened when uh, commodity uh, futures were bought up by corporations like Goldman Sachs and a wheat, for instance, which it has in the last year uh, increased by its price, increased by 100%. Uh, I saw the human consequences of that, the children who were malnourished and a- even in some cases died of starvation because they couldn't afford to eat. Um, you know, we, the wars in both Iraq and Afghanistan have very little popular support and yet for a handful of corporations, Lockheed Martin, uh, Northrop Grumman, Halliburton, uh, the, they're immensely profitable as war is for Uh, a certain tiny segment of the power lead and always has been as Smedley Butler said you know war is a racket Um, so I I think that we uh, unfortunately have created a world where power has become centralized in the hands of a select group of corporations that are more powerful than the state itself Uh, that uh, it is within the American political system impossible to vote against the interests of Goldman Sachs and unless we thwart that power, uh, we are doomed because uh, corporations, unfettered capitalism, and Karl Polanyi wrote a great book about this in 1944 called The Great Transformation, uh, turn everything into a commodity. In that sense, Karl Marx was right. I mean, unfettered capitalism is a revolutionary force. And uh, human beings become commodities, the natural world becomes a commodity that you exploit until exhaustion or collapse. And that's why the environmental crisis is intimately twinned with the economic crisis. And if we don't somehow find a mechanism or a way to break the power of those corporations, um, they will trash the, continue to trash the ecosystem to the point at which life for huge segments of the human species will be unsustainable. Senator from Vermont is recognized. Thank you, Madam President.
7: Uh, Madam President, I am offering today a resolution to amend the United States Constitution. I do not do this lightly, nor have I ever done something like this before. The U.S. Constitution is an extraordinary document which has served our country well for over 200 years, and in my view, it should not be amended often, but in light of the disastrous Supreme Court's 5-4 to four decision in the Citizens United case, I see no alternative but a constitutional amendment. I should add that a similar resolution has been offered in the House by Congressman Ted Deutsch of Florida. This constitutional amendment is supported By such grassroots organizations as public citizens, People for the American Way, and the Center for Media and Democracy. Madam President, let me go on record as strongly as I can and as clearly as I can in stating that I strongly disagree with the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision. In my view, A corporation is not a person. In my view, a corporation does not have First Amendment rights to spend as much money as it wants without disclosure on a political campaign. In my view, corporations should not be able to go into their treasuries, spend millions and millions of dollars, on a campaign in order to buy elections. I do not believe that is what American democracy is supposed to be about. I do not believe that that is what the bravest of the brave from our country, fighting for democracy, fought and died to preserve. Madam President, almost two years ago, In its now infamous Citizens United decision, the United States Supreme Court upended over a century of precedent, taking a somewhat narrow legal question and using it as an opportunity to radically change our political landscape, unleashing a tsunami of corporate spending on campaign ads that has just begun. Make no mistake. The Citizens United ruling has radically changed the nature of our democracy, further tilting the balance of the power toward the rich and the powerful at a time when already the wealthiest people in this country have never had it so good. In my view, history will record that the Supreme Court's Citizens United decision is one of the worst decisions ever made by a Supreme Court in the history of our country. While there is no way of knowing for sure, since there are no disclosure requirements in place to track what was spent, it is no secret that already in the 2010 midterm elections, corporations and some very, very wealthy individuals spent a huge and unprecedented amount of money to further their political goals. And there is no question that this is just the beginning of their efforts. At a time when corporations have over $2 trillion in cash in their bank accounts and are making record-breaking profits, the American people should be concerned when the Supreme Court says that these corporations have a constitutionally protected right to spend, spend, spend shareholders' money to dominate an election as if they were real, live persons. There will be no end to the impact that corporate interests can have on our campaigns and our democracy if we do not end this Citizens United decision and its impact on our nation. All of us in the Senate share one common characteristic. We all run for elections. We all live in the real political world. And let me just speak for a moment what I think many of my colleagues in their heart of hearts know to be true and that is that while the campaign finance system we had before Citizens United was in my view a disaster, there is no question that a disastrous situation where candidates, members of the Senate, spend huge amounts of time having to raise money, and I know that is distasteful not just for Democrats, It is distasteful for Republicans, it is distasteful for an independent. That's what we do. And now, as a result of Citizens United, that bad situation has become much worse, because infinitely more money is going to come into the political process through non-disclosed donations suddenly appearing on TV screens in our states. According to an October 10, 2011 article in Politico, the billionaire industrialist brothers David and Charles Koch plan to steer more than 200 million, potentially much more, to conservative groups ahead of Election Day 2012. What do we think? Do we think that American democracy is about a couple of wealthy billionaires putting hundreds of millions of dollars into campaigns without disclosure? Is that really the democracy that Americans fought and died for in war after war? I think not. And it clearly is not just Republican operatives. There will be Democrats doing the same. So more and more money comes into the system. We don't know where it comes from. And in order to defend ourselves, Candidates are going to have to raise more and more money, become more and more dependent on big money interest. Does anybody really believe that that is what American democracy is supposed to be about? And let's talk about the practical impacts. What happens here on the floor of the Senate? Madam President, the six largest banks on Wall Street have assets equal to over 65 percent of our GDP over nine trillion dollars, six banks. Now, when an issue comes up that impacts Wall Street, some of us, for example, think it might be a good idea to break up these huge banks. And members walk up to the desk up there and they have to decide, am I going to vote for this, am I going to vote against it? With full knowledge that if they vote against the interest of Wall Street, that two weeks later there may be ads coming down into their state, attacking them. Every member of the Senate, every member of the House, in their back of their minds will be thinking, gee, if I cast a vote this way, if I take on some big money interest, am I going to be punished for that? Will a huge amount of money be unleashed in my state? Everybody here understands that that's true. It's not just taking on Wall Street, maybe it's taking on the drug companies Maybe it's taking on the private insurance companies. Maybe it's taking on the military-industrial complex. But whatever powerful and wealthy special interest you are prepared to take on on behalf of the interests of the middle class and working families of this country, when you walk up to that desk and you cast that vote, you know in the back of your mind that you may be unleashing a tsunami of money coming into your state, and you're going to think twice about how you cast that vote. Madam President, I am a proud sponsor of a number of bills that would respond to Citizens United and begin to get a handle on the problem, and I'd like to acknowledge them very briefly. One is the Disclose Act, sponsored by Senator Schumer which would force corporations spending money on campaign ads to disclose their identity, just as candidates have to do. That is a good thing. I support it. Another is the Fair Elections Now Act, sponsored by Senator Durbin, which would move us, finally, to publicly financed elections. I think that is a very good idea. I support that. Third piece of legislation is a recent resolution for a campaign finance constitutional amendment introduced by Senator Tom Udall, of New Mexico that would make it clear that Congress and the states have the authority to write laws to regulate campaign spending across the country and make sure our state and federal elections are about what's right for our democracy. And I support Senator Udall's resolution. But even these excellent pieces of legislation are not enough. Madam President, the Constitution of this country has served us well for more than 200 years. But when the Supreme Court says that for purposes of the First Amendment, corporations are people, that writing checks from the company's bank account is constitutionally protected speech, and that even attempts by the federal government and states to impose reasonable restrictions on campaign ads are unconstitutional. When that occurs, our democracy is in grave danger. Something more needs to be done something more fundamental and indisputable, something that cannot be turned on its head by a 5-4 Supreme Court decision. We have got to send a constitutional amendment to the states that says, simply and straightforwardly, what everyone except five members of the United States Supreme Court seem to understand, and that is corporations are not people. Bank of America is not a person. ExxonMobil is not a person. Madam President, the resolution I am offering today calls for an amendment to be sent to the states that would do just that. It would make perfectly clear, one, corporations are not persons with equal constitutional rights as real-life, flesh-and-blood human beings, two, corporations are subject to regulation by the people, three, Corporations may not make campaign contributions, which has been the law of the land for the last century, and for Congress and States have the power to regulate campaign finance, as Senator Udall's amendment would also say. Madam President, this amendment is co-sponsored by Senator Begich of Alaska, and I would urge all of my colleagues to co-sponsor this amendment, which in fact does what its title suggests saves american
8: democracy thank you very much madam president we stand with humanity against the insanity we're the ones with the 99.
3: we're the seeds and we're the core we're the ones we've been waiting for we're the ones with the 99.
8: we're the windows and we are the doors and we're the ceiling and we are the floors we're the one that we've been waiting for we're the ones with the 99
3: stand up against tyranny you now have the floor you're the ones we've been waiting for we're the ones with the 99
8: the whole tax setup is a little unfair but some of us don't mind paying our share we're the ones that we've been waiting for we're the ones with the 99
3: we're the ones we've been waiting for you're the ones we've been waiting for, we're the ones with the 99
8: And We stand with humanity against the insanity, and we're the ones we've been waiting for, we're the ones with the 99.
3: Our heart's in Z Park against the oligarch, we're the ones we've been waiting for, we're the ones with the 99.
8: And even though all our bodies can't be there, we'll be there in spirit because we care. We're the ones we've been waiting for, We're the ones with the 99.
3: We stand with humanity against this insanity for all people to be free. Us and them, you and me, we're the ones ones with the the 99. 99.
0: And for now, this is Lorenzo signing off from Cyberdelic Space. Be well, my friends.
9: Too old. New York, New York, you're laying low If Washington keeps your status quo California runs the show Keeping your brothers in a can And never knowing that the world's a sham I think it's high time that we took a stand Woo! And break down the walls, set the people free Break down the walls between you and me If we don't stand together, then we're nothing at all So all help each other and take down the wall. When you're number one and feeling fine, it's easy to forget about the 99. When did you decide to leave us behind? You traded your brother for a dollar bill and your sister for a house on the hill. Regarding other people of need, though you pay our cries no heed. We're getting closer to breaking down the barriers you've set all around. We're gonna take off your crown when we break down the walls, set the people free. Break down the walls between you and me. If we don't step together, then we're nothing at all. So let's all help each other to take down the wall. It'll take some time, everything is gonna be just fine But you gotta start the change in your mind You can't stay the same, and suddenly expect to see a change Everybody's gotta play a part and an open mind Well that's a running start Starting now, love and compassion or what it's about. And though you might not yet see how our message is sounding loud and clear, we're gonna make some changes here. The problems don't just disappear. Get up, put on your marching shoes. Don't you see we got everything to lose? The time has come for you to choose to put it in the history books. The way we overturn these crooks A little passion was all it took To break down the walls, set the people free Break down the walls between you and me If we don't stand together, then we're nothing at all So let's all help each other and take down the walls Yeah, take down the walls like they used to be Take down the walls between you and me If we can't love each other, then there's nothing left to say So let's break down the walls break them. Hey